At first glance, the three men sitting around a table in the Embajador's restaurant in downtown Bogota made unlikely companions. True, they were all roughly the same age, in their mid to late 20s. And, as they traded tales of adventure, their accents would have given away that all three were Argentines, a long way from home. But that is where the similarities ended. One member of the party was tall, blonde and always immaculately dressed. Alfredo Di Stefano was arguably the most famous athlete in South America, he would go on to become the most celebrated player of his generation. It was a status he took seriously. His guests, on the other hand, must have bordered on the disheveled. Ernesto and Alberto were both doctors, but they had been traveling for months, tracing the spine of South America on a pair of dusty, beaten-up motorbikes, living out of their saddlebags, often sleeping under the stars. Their faces were bearded and their clothes worn. A friend of a friend had put them in touch with Di Stefano. And despite his fame, he had not only agreed to meet with them, but he had come bearing gifts. Some yerba mate, the bitter herbal drink that Argentines like for some reason, and most important a couple of tickets for a game the next day. That is why Ernesto and Alberto were in Bogota, after all. They were both football fans, and they had taken a break from their work in Leticia, near the Peruvian border, to make the hours-long journey to the capital, so they could watch the most exciting team in the most exciting league in the world. They were here to see the Pirates play. One of those two doctors would witness such rampant inequality on the journey around South America, and in Colombia in particular, that he became convinced of the need for social change and, eventually, violent revolution. A few years later, the world would know Ernesto, the 24-year-old cadging a ticket off one of his country's finest players, as Che Guevara. Inside the Embajadors that day, though, he was just a kid, a doctor, a fan. If anyone at that table was a rebel, it was Di Stefano. He had arrived in Colombia three years earlier, lured by the untold riches offered by the country's football clubs, to sign with Bogota's Millonarios. He was the biggest name, the greatest draw, but he was not alone. Hundreds of players, largely from South America but a handful from Europe, too, had made the same journey. In Colombia, the news media called it El Dorado. The Golden Age. Everywhere else, it had a different name. When Joseph Maria Bartomeu announced his long-anticipated resignation as president of Barcelona not with a whimper, but with a bang. In his parting speech, he confirmed he and his board had agreed in principle to take part in a forthcoming European Super League. A few hours later, Javier Tibas, the bombastic president of La Liga, accused Florentino Perez the president of Real Madrid, of orchestrating Bartomeu's announcement. This latest incarnation of the Super League, Tibas furiously alleged, is something Perez has been working on for years, but it is a plot that is destined to fail. That is what is always said about these ideas. They could not work, football's establishment haughtily warns, because renegade clubs would be cut adrift from their national and continental associations. They would become pariahs. That has, the warning runs, real consequences. Their players would not be eligible to play in FIFA competitions, and good luck persuading Kylian Bapp to get on board, if he can't play at the World Cup. There could be no mixing with the teams left behind in the national leagues, no domestic cup competitions, no involvement with UEFA, no way back. This is always presented as the final threat, the hurdle no breakaway proposal could ever clear. Except, of course, that one time when it did. In the late 1940s, with Colombia on the brink of civil war after the assassination of Jorge Gaten, its government decided, for the first time, to begin a national, professional league. Before that, football in Colombia had been local and amateur. A glamorous new league, starting in 1948, the authorities thought, might help distract a restless population. This did not work. But in 1949, the uneasy truce between Dimer the body overseeing the professional league and at a football, the country's federation, broke. The latter cut off the former, in what should have been the end of the experiment. In the event, it did quite the opposite. The league's club saw excommunication as an opportunity. 
because they were no longer affiliated with their national federation, they were no longer part of FIFA. And that meant not having to play by FIFA's transfer rules. And so Colombia's clubs taking advantage of a player strike in Argentina, as well as poor pay and working conditions for players across South America and in much of Europe, went on an unprecedented shopping spree. In the next couple of years, hundreds of foreign players arrived, among them the entire Peruvian national team, Heleno de Freitas, the brilliant troubled Brazilian star, Adolfo Pedernera, one of Argentina's most famous players, and young talents like Hector Ryle and the coruscating 23-year-old Di Stefano. The lure of outlaw football even stretched to Britain, still considered the pinnacle of the game. For players they're still earning a maximum wage which then capped even the highest salaries at only £12 per week, the sums on offer in Colombia were too good to turn down. Thousands of dollars in signing on fees, inflated because the pirate clubs did not have to pay transfer fees, plus hundreds of dollars in salaries. Accepting the mutineers' cash was so controversial that the stories of how the players made their way to Colombia seemed to be drawn straight from spy novels. Bobby Flavel of Hearts being bundled into a moving car on the runway at Glasgow Airport, Neil Franklin, regarded as the best English defender of his generation, being smuggled out of the country incognito. Only Matt Busby, the great Manchester United manager, seemed to understand the motivation. When his left-winger, Charlie Mitten, received an offer, he told him to accept it. Go, or you'll die wondering Busby told him. It did not last, of course. Few of the Europeans who made it to Colombia settled. Franklin lasted only six games. Within a few years, the league had been forced to come back into FIFA's fold, and the glittering array of stars that had contracted floated away. Some were welcomed back at the clubs they had deserted. Others, particularly in England, were treated as heretics, scorned for daring to try to earn more money. Why bring this up now? Partly, in all honesty, because it is a brilliant story, one that has not been told nearly often enough. Partly because, as Europe's elite clubs flirt with the idea of a breakaway league once again, the days of El Dorado provide a warning. Ultimately, players will go where the money is, and fans will follow. The clubs of the Pirate League could pay their generous salaries, only because Columbia stadiums were packed to the rafters. With a fragmented international audience, it is probably fair to assume the same would happen with a Super League. But it is mainly because, for all the fire and fury generated by any mention of a Super League, it reminds us that even unwelcome developments can bring unexpected benefits, and that, often, it is the breaks with orthodoxy, whether the birth of the Premier League itself or the Bozeman, ruling the Bozeman ruling meant that players could move to a new club at the end of their contract, without their old club receiving a fee. Players can now agree a pre-contract with another club for a free transfer, if the player's contract with their existing club has six months or less remaining, that have changed football's history the most. The most obvious consequence of El Dorado was the rise of Real Madrid. Santiago Bernabeu, the club's ambitious president and Paris's precursor, snared Di Stefano when he left Colombia, a transfer that almost instantaneously made his team the sport's first continental superpower. But the era's effects rippled out in countless other ways. In England, it is likely it contributed to the end of the maximum wage abolished in 1961, and what was known as the retain and transfer system, which was dismantled two years later. More broadly, it may have hastened the arrival of football superstar era, concentrating more power and more money in the hands of the very best players than they had ever enjoyed before. The day after their meeting with Di Stefano in the restaurant, Guevara and his companion, Alberto Granado, went to watch Millenarios play. Guevara was not especially impressed, he wrote to his mother complaining that the seats had not offered the best view. Perhaps it was no surprise Guevara did not take to it, El Dorado was a glimpse of football's slick corporate money-soaked future. Granado, though, was much happier. He considered himself something of an expert player, a scheming midfielder, and he was pleased with what he saw, threat to the fabric of the game or not. 
It was Heroed, one of the best games I have seen live, and there have been more than a few of those. Remember to follow Golia by hitting the follow button and slapping a 5-star review on the show or tapping the love icon. Let's get to 1 million followers and tune in daily for new episodes.